All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika, and me, Maddie. Hi, everyone, welcome back to episode four of Professionally Embarrassing. We have so much lined up for you in this episode but first we just want to take a moment to appreciate that we've now hit over a thousand downloads of our podcast. That's so mad considering we've only published three episodes and we don't know who's listening to us natural way though I suspect my dad is probably responsible for at least 50 of those downloads shout out to dad. We have loads to get on with and we're probably going to run over time as usual so Malvika why don't you get us started with what did you see on Bailey this week? Yeah, so the case I've picked this week is the absolutely blistering judgment of Mr. Justice Kean in YY, Conduct of a Local Authority, 2021 EWHC 749, and it will be in the show notes as per usual. Uh, the local authority in this matter is Herefordshire Council, which already has an unfortunate relationship with Mr. Justice Kean, because in 2018, in the matter of Herefordshire Council in AB, He said that two young people's treatment in that matter by the council represented two of the most egregious abuses of Section 20 accommodation. It has yet been my misfortune to encounter as a judge. So we're back again with Herefordshire. It's a 238 paragraph judgment with a number of appendices attached as well. So I obviously can't even get close to getting into everything that's raised in the judgment. It is a gripping and pretty horrifying read if I'm honest I'm going to start with what's at the end of the judgment because I think it sums up the case really and this is a paragraph 226 in the whole of my professional life I have rarely encountered such egregious and long-standing failures by a local authority the worst of it is I cannot after the closest possible inquiry understand why or what motivated the local authority to fail these children this mother and the interveners as appallingly and for as extended a period of time. The whole history of the role of this local authority in the lives of these children is highly inexplicable. The only matter which is clear to me is that it did not have the welfare best interests of the children at the heart of its decision making such as it was. So with that uh, grim paragraph to start us off, uh, I'll get cracking with the background. So the court was concerned with three siblings, A, who was 17 years old, B, who was 13 years old, and D, who was 11 years old. They had a sister, C, who died tragically on the 6th of June 2019 at the age of 14, and we'll come back to her death because one of the main complaints against the local authority is in respect of her death. The children had been placed in foster care in July 2012 and moved to live with their current carers, who were referred to as Mr. and Mrs. XX, in September 2012. Mr. and Mrs. XX were interveners in these proceedings. Care proceedings were issued in December 2012, and the children were made subject to care orders in January 2014. 
The matter came back in 2019 to deal with three applications, the mother's application to spend time with the children, the local authority's application to discharge the care orders and to invite the court to make special guardianship orders in favour of Mr and Mrs XX, and the local authority's application to change the children's surnames from YY to XX. During the course of proceedings in exploring those issues, a number of other issues arose about the manner in which this local authority had managed this case over the last eight years. And I will deal with three of them, even though there are a number of criticisms, the full extent of the local authority's failures are set out in Appendix 1 to the judgment. But firstly, there was real criticism of the local authority's failure to promote the children's relationship with their birth family, and its failure to dispel the children's views about their birth family. So the background here is important and detailed, and I, I can't get into it all. There's a very, very complex chronology. But in summary, early into their placement with their current carers, Mr. and Mrs. XX, the children made really serious allegations of sexual abuse against their parents, other members of their family, and people associated with their family. The children had, until that point, positive supervised contact with the mother until December 2012. Since then, there had been no direct contact at all and very limited indirect contact. A fact-finding hearing had been held in 2013 to determine those allegations, and His Honour Judge Rundle didn't find the allegations proved on the balance of probabilities. He did find that mother had hit child B on one occasion and the parents had used physical chastisement. He found that the mother had behaved in an inappropriate sexual manner in relation to other men while the children were in the home. He found the mother had a history of poor mental health, which compromised her ability to meet the children's needs consistently, as well as episodes of heavy drinking. And he found the father presented a risk of significant harm to the children in relation to sexual matters. The important part there is the findings in respect of sexual abuse were not made. The judge found that the children urgently required professional support, probably in the form of therapy or counselling, and said it's important to understand why they have made these allegations, which I have not been able to accept. And he invited the local authority in conjunction with the parents and the children's guardian to act swiftly to arrange such professional intervention as is considered appropriate. A child psychiatrist, to psychiatrist Dr. Asen or Asen, I'm not sure, uh, was instructed to provide an assessment of the children. He made various recommendations, including that the children need therapeutic help and that once permanency decisions were made about where they would be, consideration needed to be given to promoting face to face supervised contact with their birth family. The children's final care plans also provided for life story work to be undertaken with them so that they could understand the reasons why they had come into placement and what their life was like pre-placement. Post-proceedings, however, direct contact wasn't taking place. There was no professional-led life story work. There was no work around the findings that were made by His Honour Judge Rundle. And in subsequent proceedings triggered by maternal grandmother's application for contact with the children, the child psychiatrist provided a further report. He said that the children's past experiences and the false narrative around what had happened to them hadn't been discussed or explored with them in the three intervening years since the previous proceedings had concluded. He said, it's essential for each child's self-image and identity formation to have balanced views, including positive ones, about members of the birth family whom they literally and collectively appear to demonise. In the long term, the likely impact of holding such negative feelings and views of the maternal extended family 
is harmful for their psychosocial development and also their future ability to form and sustain trusting relationships. It's for this reason alone, very important that all four children remember and recover positive attributes and memories of their birth family. Indirect and direct contact would assist this process. He also raised concerns that the interveners had not been equipped by the local authority to provide any positives to the children about their birth family and the only information about the past that they had had been what the children had said to them, this negative narrative that they had created. The interveners hadn't been given a copy of the fact-finding judgment and they hadn't been reacquainted with it over many years, nor had they been given a copy of the child psychiatrist's earlier report in 2013. At a hearing in December 2016, which was in front of his honour Judge Plunkett, the designated family judge for Hereford and Worcester, it's recited on the face of the order that the court is concerned about the surprising degree of resistance to accept the clear judgment from the fact-finding hearing by the foster carers and raises the option to move the children to foster carers who understand and support the reality as letting the children grow up not knowing the truth is likely to cause them emotional harm. Once again, the proceedings concluded in April 2017 with a detailed care plan to include future contact therapy and life story work for the children. The social worker at the time, Janet Watkins, and one of the other issues in this case is there had been a constant turnover of social workers, which you and I know, Maddie, is becoming increasingly common in a number of local authorities. There's just a mass exodus of social workers because of the pressures they're under, the caseload, so on and so forth. So there's multiple families who've had social worker after social worker after social worker. But anyway, the social worker during that second set of proceedings did direct work with the foster carers, discussed the 2013 judgment with them in detail, provided reassurance to them that the court wasn't saying that the children were lying, but it was more about exploring why they were saying what they were saying and why the accounts they've given might be inaccurate. Unfortunately, the children then requested a new social worker. Uh, and after Miss Watkins's involvement ended, there was no further professional-led life story work beyond these couple of months in 2017. So in short, since the proceedings concluded, the first set of proceedings concluded many years prior in 2014, very little had been done to promote these children's relationship with their birth family or to ensure that their emotional needs were being met in the placement with their current carers, Mr. and Mrs. XX. Now, the second big criticism of the local authority, which for me was the most difficult part of this judgment to stomach, is the local authority's actions around the death of child C, which I mentioned earlier. So child C very tragically became ill and was placed on life support in an induced coma. The parents, the birth parents, were not involved in any of the meetings with child C's treating clinicians. They hadn't been forewarned by doctors about the possibility that she might die or that a decision may need to be made about withdrawing life support. On 6th of June 2019, the medical advice was that the life support machine was delaying the inevitable and mother was informed by a, a local authority staff member, I think it was the team leader, and said she was on her way to the hospital. Father didn't wish to see in her current state. Both parents agreed to the withdrawal of life support. Legal advice was sought from the local authority's legal department and a solicitor from the local authority gave advice which read, agreed birth parents need to be informed about the me medical advice. We need to consult with them, but my legal advice is our duty as corporate parents is to accept the medical advice and avoid unnecessary suffering. 
If this is contrary to the parents' wishes, it is unfortunate, but we need to take that course. At 11.54 a.m. that day, C's life support machine was switched off and she died immediately. Mother arrived shortly after and was told at hospital that C had died. That legal advice from the local authority solicitor was wrong. The judge says that the profound life and death decision to consent to the withdrawal of life support ought to have been the subject of an application to the High Court, either by BCH or by the local authority. It was wrong and an inappropriate use of its powers under Section 33 of the 1989 Act for the local authority to have exercised its powers to consent to the withdrawal of child C's life support. Section 33 of the Children Act for Clarity is about the effect of a care order. In summary, it says that the local authority has parental responsibility for the child and should keep the child in its care while the care order is in force. The court also did not accept that either parent had given informed consent to the withdrawal of life support. So I mentioned that both parents had been spoken to and had indicated that they would agree to the medical advice. But the court found that neither parent had had any contact with the children, including child C since late 2012, so just under seven years. Neither had been involved in any meeting or discussion with treating clinicians. Um, the circumstances in which they were told of the parlous state of their daughter on early morning of 6th of June. On the basis of all of that, the judge couldn't accept or find that either parent had given informed consent to the withdrawal of child C's life support. So that's the second issue that I wanted to raise, which is obviously really, really difficult to read, really, really difficult to listen to, I'm sure. The third issue I wanted to flag up was in respect to the special guardianship assessment of Mr. and Mrs. XX, which was being relied upon by the local authority when they were inviting the court to make special guardianship orders. Now, that assessment had been written by a worker called Catherine Strawn, I might be mispronouncing that, Miss Strawn. She was managed by Alison Forshaw, and the head of service was a lady called Jill Cox. Now, there was something a bit fishy about this report. Catherine Strawn was asked after Child C's death to update her special guardianship assessment. Shortly before this hearing, the 2021 hearing, she provided an unsolicited statement to the local authority where she said she had been instructed by Alison Forshaw, the manager, to undertake the updated assessment as a paper-based exercise, which you and I all know, Maddie, is entirely inappropriate for this sort of assessment. She had produced a first version of her assessment with some highly critical observations about the carers, in particular about their views about the birth family and their ability to promote contact. And that report recommended that the care orders not be discharged and the special guardianship orders not be made. She also said that as a result of the local authorities looked after children reduction policy, she and other social workers had been placed under pressure to recommend that special guardianship orders were made in favor of foster carers and kinship carers, and that she had come under pressure to recommend a special guardianship order be made in respect of these children. So the judge says, Ms. Strawn didn't consider that the interveners genuinely believed that contact with the parents and their wider family was in the best interest of the children. She told me that she had real reservations about SGOs in favor of the interveners, she did not consider this order to be in the best interests of the children. So Catherine Strawn prepared a report that was largely negative, recommended the children remain subject to care orders. 
She sent this to Alison Forshaw and said, can I leave to the court the alternative of making SGOs on the basis of a detailed support plan? Ms. Forshaw emailed her and said, look, you've got to make a recommendation. And what I'll say about that, so Mr. Goodwin QC, who was acting for mother, had queried with Ms. Forshaw in cross-examination, well, why would you have asked her to make a recommendation? She's already made a recommendation, the clear recommendation being keep these children subject to care orders. Uh, Ms. Traun then resigned, and then without materially changing the substance of her report, just changed the recommendation from one to keep the kids under care orders to one in support of making the special guardianship orders. So I won't go into the detail of all the evidence in the cross-examination, I just don't have time, but the judge found that Ms. Strawn was instructed by Ms. Forshaw to undertake a paper-only exercise to update the assessment report. She was instructed by Ms. Forshaw not to visit or contact the interveners and or the children for the purposes of completing the report that she came under pressure from Ms. Forshaw and Ms. Cox, the head of service, to produce an update which recommended the making of an SGO in respect of the children in favour of the interveners. And while the judge didn't find that she was specifically instructed to make that recommendation, she knew that both of them supported the making of an SGO in favour of the interveners. And the judge found that Ms. Forshaw, the team manager, signed off that report and arranged for it to be filed at court and served on the parties when she knew that all the observations, opinions and conclusions set out in section C of the report didn't support or provide a rational basis for the recommendation in favour of the making of an SGO. Indeed, those matters of substance set out in section C only supported the dramatically opposite recommendation that an SGO should be made. So all very, very fishy and very damning to this local authority. As I said earlier, I can't go into everything, but Appendix 1 of the judgment sets out in full the failures of the local authority. Um, the matter hasn't come to an end. The proceedings haven't been concluded. The proceedings have been adjourned with a view to the children undertaking therapeutic work with the close scrutiny of the court, with the continuing oversight of the court. As a result of this judgment, Herefordshire had an EGM yesterday, so the 27th of April 2021. Listeners can head over to my Twitter page or to Louise Tickle's Twitter page for the live tweeting that we did of that meeting. I only popped in for 40 minutes or so, so Louise is, is better off on that count. But it seemed like a lot of the councillors, a lot of the members were saying, this is so awful, we've been saying things like this for years, why has this happened? But not much in the way of clear-cut actions that are going to be taken or a roadmap for how this can be avoided in future. And perhaps that's too much to ask for this soon after the judgment, maybe I'm being unduly critical, but I was hoping for something a bit meatier from that EGM, which I didn't really get. So that's Herefordshire and why why. Any comments, Maddie? It's difficult, isn't it? Because I agree with you that, you know, local authorities are under a huge amount of pressure. They've certainly been chronically under-resourced and undervalued for such a long time. And it's showing. And the, the reason why local governments and local authorities need robust structures and resources is exactly because of things like this. But at the same time, it is basic law that local authorities share parental responsibility. They're not corporate parents. They're not takeover parents they share parental responsibility with the birth parents and just the morality and the legality of denying a mother true information about the state of her daughter's health and denying her the ability to say goodbye to her before 
she died I think is just is just damning really it's just so very very sad and I'm so sorry for that family that that happened but I think it's it's a chronic problem in the system and it needs rectifying by training it needs rectifying by funding it needs rectifying by investment in social work and investment in our communities and in our children and unfortunately we just don't have a government who value those things and so we're not going to see those improvements but I do think Herefordshire obviously need to do some reflection I need to do some training and some uh, basic principle work and recognize the importance of things like life story work recognize the importance of things like contact things like identity things like culture which we've talked about before in this podcast how important those things are for children that we don't just say that there's not just buzzwords you say it because it's true you say it because birth families matter and parents matter so much just because you have a child in care does not mean they stop being part of a family and I think it's really sad that a local authority of all agencies didn't recognize that it's it's just very sad yeah and it's terrifying how mother and the birth family were just completely marginalized and it raises the concern that social carers involved with some of the most vulnerable members of our community and they are not always necessarily going to be able to advocate for themselves you know there's been eight years worth of failures but it's really only coming to the fore now presumably because all these parties are represented have barristers have you know silks instructed to represent their interests who are able to raise these issues and hold the local authority accountable but without that input it's almost like there's such a power imbalance that local authorities are able to exploit parents' vulnerability and parents' ignorance of processes to be able to get away with things that they should not be getting away with. So it raises real concerns that other things like this might be happening in other local authorities, almost certainly will be happening in other local authorities and parents aren't able to advocate for themselves. Yeah, and I think just another point briefly, which I thought about when I was reading this judgment is how important the separation of powers is because the local authority represent the government. They don't represent the judiciary and they are a separate arm from the judiciary in our constitution. And the reason why it's it's law that you have to go to court if you're going to do things like switch off a life um, support machine or withdraw critical care from a child, the reason that you're meant to go to court and have to go to court, even if everyone agrees you're meant to go to court and get that decision signed off, is because of that exact point, because there's such a power imbalance, because you need a second, more robust, independent structure to look at this and say, okay, this is the right decision. And the local authority just completely took away that safeguard for those parents. And they didn't know that they had to do it because why would they, as you say? And that's why it's so important anytime a local authority makes that decision, even if everyone's saying we should do it, you have to get it properly considered and investigated by the courts because otherwise we just let the government do whatever they want all the time. And that, that's just not the purpose of the constitution. That's not the purpose of the, of the courts or the local authority. So it's so important that that's not allowed to happen and that local authorities exercise their power in a fair and legal way. It's just, it's basic, but it's true. What I find really interesting about this case as well is the special guardianship assessment issue, is this idea of tears of management and the pressure coming from the top down. Um, you and I will know from being instructed by local authorities that we're never just instructed by the social worker who is the person who knows the case best, that anything that requires um, more greater authorization, we need to go up to the team manager than potentially to the head of service and up to the service manager. So it's really scary to think that senior management could be 
implicitly or explicitly putting pressure on the workers who know best, who know these children best, and undermining their ability to provide effective social work to improve their stats. How terrifying is that? Yeah, and the courts just rely so much on these assessments. Like we look at these assessments and we, you can challenge them and you can question the social workers and you can challenge the authority, but you can't redo the assessment. The assessment is the assessment. And it's very difficult without very clear evidence that something's gone really wrong to get a second opinion on a special guardianship assessment or get an independent social worker instructed. And it's really concerning that the idea that you can have a paper-based assessment that in all of its content says that the children should remain subject to a care order, but the recommendation is changed to be they should be subject to a special guardianship. And that's just acceptable as a piece of social work. I mean, it's just ludicrous. That's, you know, that's just not how the world works. And it's really scary to think how much stock we place in these assessments, how much the court needs these assessments, how much the parents need these assessments to understand that every box has been ticked and every I has been dotted and they're not being conducted in a way that's in any way thorough or rigorous. Yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours about this judgment. Um, Listeners just have to read it in full to really appreciate how horrific it is and the impact on this poor family of nearly a decade of this local authority's involvement. So I'm going to stop talking about my case. You tell me about yours. Um, And of course, listeners, we'd love to hear your thoughts on why, why, and indeed the case that Maddie's about to tell me about now. I've got a cop case for you this week because I've gone a bit off brief. COP, for anyone who doesn't know, is the Court of Protection. And it's very similar to the Family Court in a lot of ways. And it normally involves vulnerable adults rather than children. But I wanted to talk about it because I think it's just incredibly interesting. And the facts are very interesting as well. And it's also got a unique element to it. So it's called REP, brackets discharge of a party. It came out on the uh, 16th of April, so it's very new. And it's a judgment from the Court of Appeal of Lord Justice Jackson, Lord Justice Baker and Lord Justice Warby, all of whom are family slash cop judges. And it's an appeal from an order made by Mr Justice Hayden, who is a very capable and um, experienced judge, who was faced with a particular situation. So I'm going to tell you the situation and then I'm going to tell you what he did. And then I'm going to tell you what the Court of Appeal did. The situation is this, the proceedings concern a very highly vulnerable woman who's 19. She, she's called P in the judgment and she suffers from cerebral palsy, atypical anorexia, post-traumatic stress disorder and selective mutism. And at the age of 16, so in 2018, she was living at home with her mother, who's the appellant in this appeal and was made subject to a child protection plan under the category of neglect and the local authorities carrying out its assessments. And it's become clear that P had been sexually abused by a male visitor to the family home. And that had caused a deterioration in her condition to such an extent that she had been the subject of court of protection proceedings in April 2019. In April, she's admitted to a paediatric medical ward because her body mass is so low and she's really suffering from the consequences of anorexia and her other issues. And Mr Justice Hayden made an interim declaration under Section 48 of the Mental Capacity Act, which just allows the court to make interim determinations, saying that there was a reason to believe that P lacked the capacity to conduct proceedings and make decisions in relation to residence, care and contact. He made an order that she be removed from her family home where she was living with her mother and placed in a residential unit by the local authority. So that's the picture by which the case came to court. P remains living at the residential unit and her contact with the appellant is supervised because there's some concern that the 
relationship with her mother is causing deterioration in her needs and causing her to become more ill but it's more nuanced than that it's not just that her mother is causing her problems she's also extremely close to her mother that they're, they're what's described as enmeshed which for anyone who's not a family practitioner is probably a word they've not heard but essentially means highly codependent highly close relationship so so her and her mother are very much enmeshed and the psychiatrists who are assessing the capacity of p and assessing where she should live what her contact should be with her mother etc are sort of disputed about exactly how much contact is beneficial and how much contact is not beneficial and they basically wanted to adjourn proceedings and allow for more therapy to be happening um, to try and work out if these issues with between p and her mother could be resolved and p could then return home to live with her mother which is what what her mother wanted as an additional piece of information during this time p's mother met a new partner with whom she had just had a baby now the hearing that was subject to an appeal was heard on the 3rd of November and the circumstances in which the appeal is made are pretty mental. So the court, that is Mr Justice Hayden, on the 3rd of November made an order that the appellant, that is the mother, was to be discharged as a party to the proceedings. These are the proceedings that she was subject to about contact with her daughter, highly vulnerable daughter was to be discharged as a party, but he gave the mother no notice of that order. The court made that order on its own initiative with no application by any of the parties and no notice of the evidence upon which the court was using when making the order was given to the mother and there was no opportunity to make any representations from the mother before the order was made. No judgment was delivered at the hearing on the 3rd of November and the mother was given hardly any indication of the reasons why the order was made. At the same time as making the order, the judge directed that if the mother wished to make any representations in respect of the order, she should do so within three days. So essentially what happened was that the mother joined the hearing on the 3rd of November and was represented by counsel, by, by Silk, in fact. And the hearing was conducted up to a point with the mother present. The judge then asked the mother to leave the hearing and her counsel to leave. And there was a part of the hearing that was conducted without the mother or her counsel being present. The mother's counsel and the mother then returned to the hearing. So as far as they were aware, they were discussing whether there should be further therapy, what psychiatric assessment should be done, etc. And her counsel came back to the hearing and was told, having heard from counsel, I've come to the conclusion that contact between P and her mother is for the present time inimical to her best interests. And I make such a declaration pursuant to section 16, which is just a section that allows the court to make such orders. In the circumstances, I consider that the appellant, that is the mother, no longer needs to be a party to the proceedings and therefore I plan to discharge her. To do otherwise would compromise P's privacy at this point. Broadly, proceedings will continue to determine questions in relation to where she should live and with whom she should have contact. If the question of contact between P and the mother requires to be reconsidered, then the mother will be contacted and invited to apply to rejoin. These are, of course, proceedings concerning an adult in relation to contact. The preponderant evidence is that she is capacitous. Nonetheless, in light of her vulnerability, I'm satisfied that this is in her best interests. Of course, it will be frustrating for your client not to know the reasons behind all of this, but we are dealing with an adult and it is P's best interest that fall to be considered and not anyone else's. So her counsel is confronted with this. He obviously has no idea what's going on. He hasn't been told anything. He's just been told that he's been discharged as a party and his client's been discharged. He, because he's a silk and is sensible, um, immediately made an application to make written submissions to the judge on the point within three days. 
he made those those written uh, submissions and the judge went ahead and discharged his client as a party. And they then made an application to appeal that order. So what had happened was a couple of days before the hearing, the local authority and the NHS trust where P was staying had received information which, if correct, indicated that P was at risk of further harm. And they decided to disclose the information to the official solicitor who's acting for P and to the court, but not to the appellant and not to her solicitors. Now, it turns out that between the hearing on the 3rd of November and the hearing at the Court of Appeal in March, the mother had become vaguely aware of what the information was. And so there, there is a general illusion in the case as to what the information was that caused the judge to make this decision. So the information is this. P had been sexually abused by the mother's partner. P had told the mother about the abuse and the mother did not believe her. P feared that the mother's new baby would be at risk of abuse from the mother's partner and that earlier P had informed her mother that she had been abused by a further male visitor to the home. But the mother took no action about this and that the mother had told P not to mention the abuse by the male visitor to anyone. So that's the information that had essentially come before the court on the 3rd of November given to them in private. And after they'd received that information, they came back and discharged the mother as a party. Now, the difficulty with this case and what the court says is the principal explanation for the judge adopting this highly unusual, if not unique course, was that the other parties to the proceedings had disclosed information to the court without notice to the appellant. And the judge concluded that if the information was disclosed to the appellant, there was a risk that P, who is, as I've already noted, a highly vulnerable young woman, would suffer serious harm. Now, the mother that subsequently made the application to appeal, but the preparation and conduct of the appeal obviously presents significant challenges because although she knows the gist, and I've just set out the gist of what the information, information is, there's a huge amount of further information, disclosures, interviews, things like that. And that's a guess, by the way, I don't know what the information is that the mother doesn't know and that the local authority don't want her to know. And in particular, don't want her to tell her partner because her partner is the subject of these allegations. So the court, is faced with a conundrum because they want to hear the appeal and they want to do justice to this mother and do justice to this case, but they remain very concerned about the risk of harm to P if there is any further disclosure made to the mother. And in addition, there's a linked police investigation and investigating officers have raised concerns about any further disclosure at this stage. So the Court of Appeal is in a position where it has to conduct an appeal from various parties without disclosing a huge amount of information in the case. They had a, essentially a sort of two parallel appeal where the parties had to give open skeletons, closed skeletons, open arguments, closed arguments. But the difficulty with that is, and this is where the non-lawyers need to listen up. If you're representing your client at an appeal and you find out something, you have to tell it to them because that's your obligation as their lawyer. If you find out information, the court can't stop you from telling your client. Well, it can, but anyway you're in difficulty because you have a responsibility to fiercely represent your client and make sure that your client is fully aware and informed and represented to the best of your ability. But there's information in the proceedings that you are not aware of. So what the court did was appoint what's called a special advocate. Now, a special advocate is a type of counsel that is given to someone to represent their interests, but without actually acting for them. So they are present at hearings that are closed, at hearings that contain information that their quotation marks client doesn't know, 
and they do not have to tell their client about that information, but they represent the interests of that client at that hearing. Now, special advocates, if you're a criminal practitioner or anyone who works in public law, well, you'll be very familiar with them because they're used almost exclusively in terrorism cases. They're used for the representation of people who are being tried using information that if it was disclosed, even to the person who's accused of doing it, would breach national security and would cause problems with intelligence and national security in the UK. Special advocates have never been used in the civil division of the Court of Appeal. This case is the first case in history that uses a special advocate in the civil division. And the reason that they did it is because they needed to represent the appellant mother's interests at the hearing, but they needed all the information to come to a decision as to whether the course that Mr. Justice Hayden had taken at that hearing was a fair one. So what happened at the appeal? The court, it's a very good judgment. It's very well written. It's quite short and I'd, I'd recommend reading it because it goes into the law about confidentiality and when you can and cannot withhold information, when you can and cannot discharge parties without notice, et cetera, et cetera. Essentially the test is, is what's called the strict necessity test, which is you must only withhold notice or withhold documents or withhold information from a party to proceedings where there is a strict necessity to do so. And that is a different test to whether you can discharge a party without notice to that party that you are going to do it or without an application by any of the parties to do that. So the court considered in the open and closed skeleton arguments that they would agree that the test of strict necessity in relation to the disclosure of documents was probably met at the hearing on the 3rd of November, despite the fact the mother had now learned some of the information. At the time in the 3rd of November, the court could have made injunctions, could have made protective orders, it could have directed some of the evidence be withheld, it could have excluded the appellant from hearings for a period of time, it could have appointed a special advocate at that stage, it could have even basically gone as far as discharging the appellant after giving her an opportunity to make representations. And if that required adjournment, that's what the court should have done. So what the Court of Appeals say is, whilst we accept that there are circumstances where you can withhold information, you can withhold a lot of information and you can do lots of different procedural things to try and maintain confidentiality, it is almost unheard of. And in fact, it has never happened, save for one case, which I'll come on to in a minute, where a party has been discharged with absolutely no notice and without the opportunity to make representations. And essentially what it comes down to is basic justice. It comes down to the idea of justice. It comes down to human rights. It comes down to the family procedure rules, the court of protection procedure rules. You can't really make a decision when you already have all the parties there without hearing from all of them. It's just basic. You could appeal that at any court up and down the land. If you're not given an opportunity to be heard, then it's not the Fed decision that was made. And that's essentially what this appeal says. So it's a pretty basic point, but within circumstances that are incredibly interesting. What the court says is there was at the date of the hearing, that is the 3rd of November, a very strong argument for withholding information from the appellant and suspending her contact with P. But I've reached the clear conclusion that it was not shown to be necessary to discharge her as a party. And there was certainly no basis for discharging her as a party without notice. There was no doubt it was necessary to withhold information at that stage because of the police investigation and the local authority investigation, but that did not justify discharging the appellant as a party. It is often the case that serious allegations of child abuse lead to contemporaneous care proceedings and a police investigation, which Malvika and I both know. In those circumstances, it is not infrequently necessary to withhold information from one or other party to the care proceedings while the investigations are carried out. 
it is never necessary to discharge the individual from whom evidence is temporarily withheld as a party while the investigation is completed. I can see that had the judge decided to follow the course proposed by the respondents of granting an injunction, it would have been necessary to direct that the extension of the injunction should be reconsidered at a further hearing, etc., etc. Before us, the respondents acknowledged that the advantage of the course taken by the judge, that is the discharge of the party, by simply discharging the opponent as a party and by refraining from giving any reasons for that decision, there would be no need to disclose the evidence. I do not consider this to be a proper basis for departing from the ordinary principles of a judicial inquiry. They then go on to say that there is one case where this is they, that they can find, that is all the justices in the Court of Appeal could only find one case in the history of reported cases in England where a party had been discharged without notice. And that's a case called M&M, and it's a family case where a father was discharged as a party without notice after a history of not engaging in the proceedings and a history of extreme violence. And in that case, that was heard by Mr Justice Headley, and he identified a staged approach to applications to discharge a party, starting with full participation, then considering partial participation, for example, redaction, and then only as a last resort, excluding the party from the proceedings. In this case, the court says, the judge adopted the opposite approach, asking whether there was any reason for the appellant remaining a party, and having concluded that given the priority of P's rights, there was no reason, discharging her without notice. Had the judge simply decided to suspend contact and withhold information from the appellant for a period of time, he would have been in a much better position to determine whether it was necessary or appropriate to discharge her as a party once the picture had become clearer. In all probability, it would have been possible at a subsequent hearing to disclose at least part of the information, either redacted or in some form of a gist document. Accordingly, therefore, the court goes on to say, we would allow the appeal. With regard to the order dated 10th of December, I would allow the appeal. But if my lords agree that the appeal against the earlier order should be allowed, the later order becomes redundant. There was two appeals on an order, but they're both the same. The effect is this will simply be that the appellant is restored as a party. Meanwhile, in order to prevent disclosure of evidence or information, which might be harmful to P, I would propose that this court now directs that no further evidence or information relating to the proceedings be served on the appellant for a period of 28 days after handing down of this judgment to allow a calling off period. Pretty crazy. It's just an odd one, isn't it? Mr Justice Hayden is an eminently sensible judge um, who writes eminently sensible judgments. And this just seems very off-piste because you're right, it's not a complex legal point. It's just going back to first principles. It's about a party's Article 6 rights. It's about facilitating their participation in proceedings. And if you're going to make a decision in respect of them, uh, giving a full and reasoned judgment for why you've done what you've done. Very, very odd. And as you said, it's not unusual at all, certainly in the family courts, for a party, usually the local authority, to be privy to information that they don't want one of the lay parties to know, but we just crack on and deal with it. Yeah, I don't understand why he, he jumped to that without exploring all the other options. And considering that Mum's counsel had an opportunity to make written submissions as well, so he did have time to further consider what he was doing. Very odd. Don't, don't get it. Don't understand how we got there. It is odd. I think it's incredibly interesting as well for any practitioners who work in the court of protection or family court listening that the special advocate procedure does exist in the civil division and is available in the civil division. So if you have a case such as this where you've clearly got an extremely vulnerable, extremely delicate plaintiff at the heart of the proceedings, which this woman certainly was, this young woman at the heart of these proceedings, her health was clearly on, on a real razor edge. If the court is really concerned about making decisions that might affect her or anyone else like her, and they need to make sure that things stay confidential. The special advocate procedure is available and it is the first time it's been used in the civil division here. 
but it is available and the court can use it. And if you need someone to represent a party without telling them anything, but having making sure that they're heard, then that procedure is available. Now, the merits of that procedure may be something that Malvika is more interested in because with her transparency hat on, it's certainly not the most transparent thing that the court can do. And that's one of the biggest complaints about the terrorist cases in which it's used is that defendants don't actually know what they're being charged with because they're not told because it's a question of national security, which is a bit Kafkaesque, a little bit scary. But for practitioners, it's worth remembering that the special advocate is there and can be used. And there's no reason to panic, which is, seems slightly what Mr. Justice Hayden did in this case and just took it a little bit too far. Um, there's no need to panic and say, well, we can't possibly tell them anything. That's that. The, the decision's made. You've got to make sure that you accommodate partial participation, redaction, anything that you can do to make sure that that party is not disadvantaged and that their representations are able to be made. Enormously interesting to be a special advocate because the client advocate relationship is just totally transformed, isn't it? The usual way of things is anything that's said to you, you have a duty on you to tell that to your client. Yeah, I'd be fascinated to know how the process of taking instructions, providing advice, just how the entire manner of interaction is just totally transformed when you're a special advocate. Okay, book, podcast, talk recommendations. What do you got for me? Well, I've been listening to a podcast, which isn't really about law at all, but is is really good. And this is why I'm on the podcast, because Navik does the law reading and I do the kind of podcast stuff. It's called Where is George Gibney? And it's a podcast about a swimming coach from Ireland who is accused of sexually abusing the children that he was coaching in the late 70s and 80s. And it's essentially an investigative journalist basically tries to find him because charges were brought in Ireland against him in the 90s. And it was a Supreme Court ruling of the 90s in Ireland that basically said, and this is pre-Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris, Utree, all that stuff. What the Supreme Court decision said in Ireland is that you can't bring charges that are 20 years old because it's not fair on the defendant. They can't possibly be expected to remember. They wouldn't have alibis. They wouldn't have the ability to know where they were. So we're not going to let you bring any charges. And so this guy basically walked free. And it's all about reconciling that decision and reconciling the fact that he was never actually tried. In fact, he never even denied it. He just wasn't given the opportunity to enter a plea or be tried with it. So it's a super interesting look at the kind of victim side of the stuff that Malvika and I sadly see in our jobs, but also an interesting look at some Irish decisions from the 90s. So I'd recommend it. It's really good. My podcast recommendations, a new podcast series by Louise Tickle, who I mentioned earlier when I was talking about Why Why, and she's created it in collaboration with Tortoise Media, and it's called Hidden Homicides, and I absolutely devoured it within a couple of days. Listeners might be familiar with Louise. Maddie, I know you're familiar with Louise. She's my fellow core group member on the Transparency Project, and she has been instrumental in driving the conversation around transparency in the family courts. So the podcast is about finding out the true toll of domestic abuse and looks at cases where a victim's death is unexplained or sudden. And so it doesn't form part of the domestic abuse statistics that we have. So it looks at how poorly police forces are tracking those deaths and why that is obscuring the real impact of domestic abuse. So for example, episode two focuses on the case of a woman called Susan Nicholson, who died in 2011. Her partner at the time, Robert Trigg, 
claimed that he had rolled over in his sleep and accidentally suffocated her as they lay on the sofa together. And the police were called and they totally bought his story. And this is despite the police knowing that five years previously, his ex-girlfriend had also died suddenly lifeless on the bed that she shared with him. So the police- No. There had also been a, a history of abusive behavior on their records and they just failed to properly interrogate the account that he gave them. So it took years of tireless campaigning on her parents' part. They eventually instructed a barrister and their own forensic pathologist. And eventually Trigg was convicted of Susan Nicholson's murder and the manslaughter of his ex-girlfriend, Caroline Devlin. So just utterly, utterly bizarre. And it's all about these deaths that we're writing off as unexplained or accidental um, of women who have had some sort of abuse marker on them, some sort of abusive relationship with a partner. And it's about whether or not we're fully appreciating the impact of domestic abuse, whether we have all the data available. And it looks in particular at police failures in sharing information and connecting the dots. And as a result of that investigation, Louise is calling for an annual national count of women who are known by the police to have been abused, who've died suddenly or in unexpected circumstances and their deaths have not been investigated as homicides. Before we move to Tweet of the Week, I just wanted to flag up one thing, which I meant to do in the last episode and completely forgot about, which is that the LAPG, the Legal Aid Practitioners Group, has launched its 2021 Legal Aid Census, which is gathering data about the backgrounds and lived experiences of those working on the social justice frontline so it will complement the work of the all-party parliamentary group on legal aid's inquiry into the sustainability of the legal aid sector, which I've talked about previously on this podcast when I was talking about AXA Hussein's oral evidence. And it will feed into, the results of the census will feed into the Treasury spending review, the MOJ's review into the sustainability of civil legal, civil legal aid, and Sir Christopher Bellamy's review of criminal legal aid. It closes on the 11th of June. It's available online and I would urge legal aid practitioners to complete it. We've discussed this in previous episodes, but the sector is an absolute breaking point and it's just not sustainable. And we're losing so much talent from the legal aid sector and we need to take urgent action before it collapses completely. So if you are a practitioner, please take a moment to complete that census. I agree, do it. We need as much help as we can get over here. Right. Do you want to tell me what your tweet of the week slash fortnight is? My tweet of the week is from Harriet Johnson at Harriet E. Johnson, who wrote, you're not officially a barrister unless your other half has said, all right, we're not in court when you're arguing. I know we're not in court. If we were, you'd have lost at half time. Now listen to the first of my five points outlining why you're wrong. Now, clear throat. If you'll turn to tab three of your bundle at page seven of my skeleton argument, you'll see the subheading, bins. I felt personally victimized by that tweet. I sent it to my boyfriend and he said that that's completely accurate and that's exactly how I argue with him. I can't help it that I like to clearly structure my arguments in a coherent and well-evidenced way, can I? Yeah, I agree. I think my sister who I live with would agree massively about that, that she always says to me, don't treat me like an idiot. Don't talk to me like I'm your other side in court. I do catch myself doing it. I also catch myself using legal phrases whenever I'm in an argument that everyone else just says make me sound not very nice so that's got to stop. I previously had someone say to me arguing with another barrister that's not your best point 
And then when I when I said something else, they went, ah, oh, I think that's your better point. And that just wound me up so much. Were you arguing with my friend Phil Blatchley? Because he does that exact thing. Shout out to Phil. He always says that to me. Mm, Maddie, that's not your best point. Phil, I'm talking to you about where you want to go for dinner. What are you on about? <laughs> What's your tweet of the week? My tweet of the week is from Mark Sparrow, at Mark G Sparrow. And it says, best email signature ever, colon, here's the email signature. It is normal for me to take a couple of days to read my emails and several more days to reflect on the matter and respond in a calm manner. The culture of immediacy and the constant fragmentation of time are not compatible with the kind of life I lead. And I just, I really want to put that underneath all my emails. I just think it's brilliant. And I think it's so well written and well done. And I just think that's such a good way of putting it that not only do I not reply to your emails immediately because I'm literally too busy to do so, but also I want a bit of time to think. I want a bit of time to reflect on what the right answer is. I want to be able to do it properly. And the culture that we live in, especially now with COVID, just makes that so much more difficult. And I feel like I'm losing the luxury of being able to think about things properly and come to a reasoned decision. And that can be quite stressful and can add a little bit to my sort of stress levels when I'm at work that I do feel like I don't have time to formulate a proper response and I'm, I'm sort of putting out fires rather than really building pyres as it were. Yeah and I think we're also getting very crabby with each other in correspondence we're just getting snappier and more impatient and I think that's because like you said we're firefighting we're sending back emails quickly to deal with a point without thinking about the impact of it on the other person and I think in the current climate, it's even more important that we're thoughtful in how we speak and what we say to other people because they are probably going through a rough time too. And the words you use can impact them in ways that you couldn't possibly imagine. I've taken the move of deleting my work emails off my phone because I was getting so stressed. It's the first thing I looked at when I woke up in the morning. I would go straight onto my emails. I'd try and reply to everything on my phone so that it was more manageable once I logged onto my laptop. And actually, I've found it so much more helpful to my well-being to just be able to look at my emails on my laptop. I don't feel like there's any immediacy. You know, obviously, I keep an eye on my emails anyway if I was waiting for something urgent. But I don't think I owe anyone constant availability. And it's something that a lot of barristers seem to think that they do owe everyone. Yeah, and I think just, like I said, the, the ability to be able to think about something and just have it sitting in your brain and stewing in your brain. So much of what we do as lawyers, so much of what all lawyers do is think about things. We're asked a question, we're given a brief and they say, this is your task, go away and do it. And a lot of the doing of the doing is not addressing the judge or writing a position statement. It's working out what the best thing for the case is. Do we need this assessment? Do we need that assessment? Do we need this valuation, that valuation? You know, you've got to find the answer you've got to do the working out and I think that's something that I really value and really need at the bar is, is time to think through everything properly and I think I even find it with this podcast like that conversation we just had you know I wish we could talk about it more I wish I had time to go away and learn more about it and discuss it more with you and be reflective and learn from what we're saying to each other and, and think more about the conversations that we have and each week we have really interesting conversations and then we just go on to something new the next week which is great but it's it, you kind of lose the ability to for reflective discussion and for think where you come back and say oh I've thought about what you said to me a couple of days ago I've, I've actually thought about it properly and this is what I think and maybe that's just me and my emotional slowness showing my boyfriend always says it takes me three days to formulate how I feel but I think it does I think I, ju I just appreciate having time to sort of marinate in my thoughts a little bit and especially doing what we do so much of our 
skill and what people pay for is just our brains um, and, what, and what, what we think the answer is and you don't come to answers instantaneously and if you do you're a fool I love how you all you just cringed when I mooted the possibility of deleting my work emails on my phone you looked absolutely horrified by that suggestion yeah having said all that I'm not going to do that and I'm just going to carry on doing exactly what I'm doing and let's hope it all gets better <laughs> but no I'm glad that seems like a really good suggestion I mean if anyone does feel kind of overwhelmed and like they need a, a bit of separation I think that's a good thing to do I think for me I just need to learn to read them think about them and then reply to them anyway that's that on that thank you for tuning in this week everyone um we'll see you in a fortnight hopefully with more exciting ideas do send us tweets and ideas of what you want to hear from us I did a poll Maddie I don't know if you saw it on Twitter for what people want to hear and the feedback I got was more polite disagreements which I think means that we've got the green light to argue loads. And I don't know what that means. <laughs> I, know, I don't politely disagree. I impolitely disagree. Yeah, how rude. <laughs> and more case law, which I took to yeah. that people just don't want to read the judgments themselves and they want us to just break it down for them. We're trying our best, guys, but we have to read them and digest them too. So if you've got any you want us to do, send them in. I'm more than happy to look at them. And if there's any that you can't be bothered to read, we'll do it for you. Well, we're absolutely steaming through these. So roll on episode five. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Bye. Thanks for joining. Bye.